You may be seated. And it is good to be with you. We are continuing in the book of Acts. Um, and uh, it's my pleasure to, to be with you, to be able to join you for this today. Uh, we preached Acts at our church three years ago, and uh, this passage happened to fall to me. So uh, I'm glad to be able to join you for it again as we look at it today. And in Acts 3, we see uh, a perfect example of what you saw in last week's sermon, uh, what Luke wrote in Acts 2.43, that many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And Ryan pointed out last week that these signs and wonders were proof that what the apostles were saying was true. Their claims about Jesus, that he was the resurrected and powerful Lord, were true, and God was proving it by giving them great uh, miracles and working among them in power. And in this chapter, in Acts chapter three, Luke records an example of one miracle and then how Peter seizes the opportunity as he sees people uh, drawing together, as he sees a crowd coming together. Peter seizes the opportunity to speak about Jesus. So let's read Acts three, the whole chapter together. Uh, if you don't, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can look there or it'll be up here on the screens. Acts 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. 
And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of God. I love how this passage begins. Peter and John going up to the temple to pray. Here we have two of Jesus' followers who were deeply impacted by the time that they had spent with Jesus. Jesus himself had often evaded the crowds, you will remember, gone off to desolate places in order to spend time in prayer, extended time praying. And now we see his disciples, those who followed him and spent several years with him, doing the same. They even observed a designated time for prayer. They regularly went to the temple to pray, we're told. They were men of prayer, just like their master. And it's important to note here, not just the prayer, but also that they went to the temple. True, this shouldn't surprise us too much, the first Christians were all Jews, uh, we know this, but remember Jesus' growing division from the Jewish leaders, from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Jesus had even predicted the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This had infuriated the, re the religious leaders there. And Jesus had specifically hinted that he would be the new temple, the new meeting place between God and man. Uh, when he spoke with the woman at the well in John chapter four, she asked him, well, should we keep, should, do, do, are we supposed to worship at the temple or should we uh, worship here on Mount Gerizim as our people do? And Jesus said, Neither. <laughs> a time is coming when you will not worship in Jerusalem or on this mount because Jesus himself would be the new temple, the new meeting place between God and man. And now Jesus was that connection. So no temple was necessary or any other building for people to pray at. But the apostles also knew that the message about Jesus was for the Jews first. And so they went to the temple because they were eager to tell the Jews about Jesus, about the promise that was for them first and foremost. So they went to the temple to pray. And in the next chapter, we will see that the apostles' devotion to Jesus and to speaking about his resurrection also led to a division between them and the religious leaders in Jerusalem, just as it had done between Jesus and the religious leaders there. And yet, the apostles are dedicated to speaking about Jesus. 
dedicated to going to the temple to tell the message about Jesus until they're forcibly driven out. So as Peter and John went up to the temple here in chapter three, they saw a man who was unable to walk. He'd been born with this disability and because he could not do manual labor, he was dependent on the charity of others. Uh, he asked alms, some small amount of money, perhaps from the, the religious people who were going into the temple. If they're truly pious, uh, they should show charity to others. And so daily, we're told, every day, day by day, he was set in this same spot, at this same gate, at the same entrance to the temple. And when he asked Peter and John, they responded, look at us. And when they had his attention, they let him know that they didn't have any money. But Peter said, what I have, I give to you, verse six. They had no money, but they had something far greater. They had the power of Jesus Christ. And so Peter commanded the man to stand up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And the man believed. And so he took Peter's hand and immediately as Peter raised him up, his feet and his ankles were made strong. And Luke, the physician, again, uh, draws out these two particular uh, body parts. He uses specific words for these. He's interested in uh, the exact healing that Jesus did to this man. And you can imagine the man's reaction when he's healed. <laughs> Not only does he walk, but in verse eight, we see that he even leaps and praises God. He's overwhelmed. In chapter four, we uh, will see that he was over 40 years old. So if he ever had a hope of walking in his lifetime, that hope had long since died. No wonder he praises God. And so he clings to the apostles, it says in verse 11. He wouldn't let him go. Peter and John go into the temple. He goes into the temple with them. And the people inside the temple recognize the man who's healed, it says in verse 10. Um, they, re they recognize him because, again, as it says in verse 2, he, he was laid in the same spot every day, day by day. And uh, they must have wondered to themselves, this is the man who was always carried here. How do we see him walking? <laughs> so they wondered at him. And a crowd began to gather because something amazing had happened and people were coming from all over the temple to see it. And Peter seizes the opportunity. And what does he do? Mark this. He doesn't pray for another miracle. That's, that should be somewhat striking to us. He, he speaks about Jesus. He begins to preach about the good news of Jesus. Perhaps this surprises us but it is important, and I want to take a, a moment to consider this. Remember Peter's words in verse 6. What I have, I give to you. Think for a moment. What is the greatest gift that Peter has to give? It's not money. He didn't have any. It's not even physical healing. The greatest gift that he has to give is Jesus Christ himself. The message about Jesus, the gospel, was what Peter began to speak about. He began preaching. And we get a sense of Peter's priorities from this action. In Peter's estimation, telling the message about Jesus is more important even than 
going on some sort of uh, healing fest. The greatest gift that Peter has to give is Jesus himself, and I think that's why Luke takes the rest of this chapter to record Peter's words, to record this sermon that Peter preached here, or at least part of it. So let's look at Peter's sermon and see why he believed that Jesus was the greatest gift. I think that there are at least three reasons that Peter gives here, um, and we'll look at these three reasons today. Three reasons that Jesus is the greater gift, the greatest gift. First, Jesus is the one who gives physical healing. We all instinctively know that the giver of a gift is greater than the gift itself. If you uh, have recently gotten your driver's permit and your parents give you a new vehicle, which do you love more, your parent or the vehicle? <laughs> it should be obvious, right? You love the one who gave you the gift, the source of the gift, uh, because they're, they're expressing their love for you. The giver of the gift is greater than the gift itself, and that's true here as well. Jesus, who has the power of physical healing, who gave this physical healing to this man, is greater than the gift of physical healing itself. This is not meant in any way to belittle the gift. This is significant that this man would suddenly walk spontaneously after, uh, after Peter speaks to him and tells him in the name of Jesus to speak. He jumps up, he leaps, we're told, and he praises God. And both his leaping and his praising God are ways that he gives thanks. With his mouth, he speaks praises, and with his legs, he jumps. And you can imagine him saying something like, thanks for the legs, Lord, I'm using them. <laughs> he was grateful for the gift, and so he gave thanks to the giver. So we should note, Jesus is the, is the greater gift here. He's greater than physical healing even, because he's the source of it. And Peter reemphasizes this point from a slightly different angle in verse 12. He says, don't look at us, Peter and John, we didn't do this by our own power or godliness because we're, we're such spiritual people. He says Jesus is the one who did this healing. As great as the physical healing is, Peter doesn't want the crowd to lose sight of Jesus because of this physical healing. It should be an arrow pointing them back to the giver of the gift himself. Peter's adamant that the crowd recognize that Jesus is at work. And maybe this reminds you of what Luke wrote in Acts 1.1. Ryan pointed this out uh, in an earlier sermon. Uh, Luke says there that this is the record of Jesus' ongoing works. Jesus is still at work in the world here through his apostles as they speak his name, as they speak the message about Jesus. Jesus continues to work among them. And Peter is eager to use this healing as an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. So the first reason that we see that Jesus is the greatest gift that Peter has to give is because Jesus is the one who gives physical healing. Secondly, the second reason that Jesus is the greatest gift Peter has to offer is because he's the one, Jesus is the one who fulfills all of God's promises. Jesus fulfills all of God's promises. As you look through the rest of this chapter, you'll see Paul repeatedly quoting from the Jewish scriptures, which we nowadays, calls, uh, nowadays call the Old Testament. Uh, Peter pulls out various prophecies that were made 
and he's drawing this connection. What you saw promised here in all these scriptures is happening today in Jesus. To a Jewish person living in the first century, this would have been tremendously important. God had made many promises to the Jewish people, but quite a few of them were in fact not fulfilled yet. And uh, there was an increasing, there was a decreasing amount of prophets among the people. It was as if God was going silent. He'd made all these promises and uh, between what we consider the close of the Old Testament and the, the coming of John the Baptist, there were very few prophets. The people must have began to wonder, will God fulfill his prophecies? Will he keep these promises to us? And in fact, by the time that Peter was preaching, there were so many different ways of trying to answer that question. How's God gonna keep his promises that the Jewish people were fracturing? There were different groups among the Jews, each one with a different way of interpreting these promises. So when Peter stood up in the temple and began telling them that God's promises were being fulfilled today, in their day, it must have been electrifying. Look at verse 24, for instance. Peter says, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Now, if you, if you know the prophet Samuel, you know he lived about a thousand years before the time of Christ. So Peter's claiming that a thousand years of prophecy were coming true right then. They were be being fulfilled in their own day. And the way they were fulfilled was through Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, he says. And so he's the most important gift that Peter has to give, a thousand years of promises today in Jesus. No wonder Peter wanted to tell the people about Jesus. Peter mentions multiple prophecies in this sermon, but I wanna just kinda pick out three of them here uh, first. In verse 22, he mentions a prophecy made by Moses. Moses said, verse 22, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now, Moses was one of the greatest figures in Jewish history. He had been the one who led the people out of Egypt. He had received the law directly from God, the law that became the blueprint for Jewish civilization and culture for 1,500 years. Perhaps only Abraham compares with Moses in the history of God's redemption uh, before Jesus. And Peter is saying the prophet, there is a prophet like Moses who has been raised up it is Jesus. Jesus was fulfilling this prophet to be a, a, a messenger, a prophet like Moses. And just like Moses, whoever ignored his words would lose access to the promises. You disregard the law of Moses, you're cut off from the people. You disregard Jesus who fulfills God's promises and speaks authoritatively for God and you will be cut off from the promises. The promises will be fulfilled, but you won't take part in them. Significant, Jesus fulfills 
this prophecy to be a prophet like Moses, a messenger for God. The second prophecy is in verse 25. Here, Peter looks at God's original promise to Abraham, who was the father of the entire Jewish nation. He's looking back to the promise that inaugurated the Jewish people. Peter reminds them, verse 25, saying, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Peter is reminding them of God's promise that created Israel. God's promise was that he would bless the whole world through the nation of Israel. And now Peter is saying, if you believe the message about Jesus, this prophecy, the very purpose for which Israel was created, will be fulfilled through you. You can turn around and be used by God to bless every other ethnic group in the world. Uh, We're somewhat familiar with these sort of promises having come through a rather vicious political season. Uh, Who doesn't want Uh, and which political party doesn't promise to alleviate the suffering of the world. But here's one who can do it. And Peter's saying, this promise, the promise that peace will spread to all the people groups in the world, that there will be joy and prosperity and happiness, blessing to all the peoples of the world is being fulfilled today in Jesus. If only they would get on board with God's program and recognize him for who he is, the one who fulfills God's promises. That's the second prophecy I wanna look at. And the third prophecy, perhaps the most important, is a little more difficult to spot here. So let me point it out. Look first at verse 13, where Peter says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob glorified his servant, Jesus. Note that word, servant. Then look at verses 14 and 15 where Peter charges the people with rejecting Jesus. You rejected his servant, Peter says. Now look down at verse 18. Peter says, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. God's servant rejected and suffering. Remind you of anything? suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. Isaiah had prophesied that God would send a servant who would suffer on behalf of the people and be rejected by them, and yet God would glorify him. And we know that we're on the right track here uh, because this same word that Peter uses for servant here in verse 13 and in verse 26 is the word that's used in the Greek version of the book of Isaiah uh, in Isaiah 52 and 53 to refer to the servant there. So uh, first century Jews would have immediately thought of this passage, uh, the servant. I I know the servant that you're speaking of. Let's take a look back at Isaiah 53 just briefly to see this prophecy that Peter's talking about. Uh, You can just put your finger in Acts 3 there and turn back to Isaiah 53 if you've got a Bible with you. I'll read just a short section from it here. No doubt some of you will recognize this famous passage. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3, speaking of the servant, Isaiah says, he was despised 
and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Stop there. Isaiah said the servant would suffer and be rejected. Peter says, you delivered him to Pilate. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. Isaiah says, we did not think highly of him. We did not esteem him highly. Peter says, you chose a murderer instead of him. Prophecy fulfilled. Isaiah ends the prophecy though in this way, saying he was pierced for our transgressions, for our transgressions. And Peter says in verse 19, if you repent, your sins will be blotted out. Isaiah prophesied, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peter says, if you repent, look at verse 20, times of refreshing will come from the Lord. This is a good transition to our third point here. Um, There's some overlap here between point two and three. We've seen that Jesus is the greatest gift here because he fulfills all of God's promises. And the third thing we see now is Jesus is the greatest gift Peter has to give because he's the one who gives spiritual healing. Jesus is the one who gives spiritual healing. Points two and three uh, do overlap some. We saw in Isaiah's prophecy that the servant would bring peace because of his wounds, Isaiah says, we are healed. But what sort of healing does he mean? Yes, physical. There is a sense in which it's physical. And the Gospel of Matthew uh, picks up on that. But there's something more here. He's referring to a spiritual healing, I think. And again, Peter picks up on this. He says in verse 19, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Another possible translation is that your sins may be wiped away. He's saying it's not merely physical healing that Jesus brings. He brings spiritual healing as well, the removal of sin. Peter assumes that these people are sinful. They're spiritually broken. They're separated from God. So they need spiritual healing. But what was their sin? Well, Peter accuses them of many things, in fact. He reminds them of Jesus' death that had happened so recently, two two months or so before, perhaps. And he says, you're guilty for it, to this gathered crowd. His blood is on your hands. Peter says in verse 13, when Jesus was on trial, Pilate had actually decided to release him, and you said no. All you had to do was say, okay, release him, Pilate, and he would have done it but instead you asked for a murderer to be released to you. They were guilty of deep sins, significant crimes. And it gets worse, verse 15, Peter says, you killed the author of life, the one who gave you life, the one who gives you breath, who sustains you, the originator of all things from whom all life comes. You murdered him. Your sin is very great, he says. 
but Jesus could heal them even of this. Look at verses 19 and 20. Repent, therefore, Peter says, and turn again so that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, even with all that they had done, killing the author of life, denying him when all they had to do was say, yes, release him. Even with all their sins, they could be forgiven. And this is the heart of this message here, I think. They can be forgiven for any sin that they've committed simply for believing in Jesus, for accepting this message that Peter's telling them about, for being sorry for what they've done and turning to him in confidence, putting their hope in him. But why should they believe this message? No doubt they must have asked this question. Why should we believe you? Well, first of all, they had seen the man healed, the man whom they knew, who sat in the same place every day, day by day, now walking. But more significantly than that, this healing points back to something more. And this is what Peter wants to draw out to them. Jesus, whom you killed, God raised from the dead. He was resurrected from the grave. God gave him new life, permanent life. Not simply uh, putting breath back into his body. He took him out of the grave, never to die again. The proof of Peter's message was that Jesus didn't stay dead. God had resurrected him again, raised him from the dead. God glorified him. That's the word Peter uses in verse 13. He's saying this is God's seal of approval. This is God's chosen messenger, the one who will bring spiritual healing. And if you will believe this message and repent, he says, you will be forgiven. God would remove their guilt. Again, this is striking. They actively participated in the execution of the Son of God. And now they have a promise, an assurance of forgiveness with God if they will trust in the same one whom they executed, believing that he was raised from the dead they would be completely forgiven. And more than that, they could experience, as Peter calls it, times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord. I love that phrase. I think that's significant. And that's why it's, it's not enough just to say forgiveness. Yes, God does promise forgiveness for all those who trust in Jesus, but there's something more here. And, and, and I think uh, this phrase should land on us Christians, particularly if at times you find yourself growing cold to the gospel promises, because it's more than just forgiveness, and forgiveness is no small thing, no small thing. At times we become inoculated because we talk about it so lightly. We forget who we are. We don't estimate ourselves properly. We don't understand who we are until we can say we are as guilty as these first century Jews were. There's no ethnic hatred between us and these Jews. Quite the opposite. When we look inside our hearts, we see that we're broken people. We don't live up to our own expectations if we're honest with ourselves. And certainly, if you read God's law, you don't meet up to his expectations either. And that's the significant thing here. You're a rebel. I'm a rebel at the very base of my heart. 
And until we see that about ourselves, we can't estimate properly the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. This promise that times of refreshing will come to us where we can be in the presence of the Lord. That's why I call this spiritual health. If they had a guilty conscience, they could be unburdened, totally free of shame. Peter's not preaching here, and this is another significant point that I wanna draw out. Peter's not preaching here a message of uncertainty either. There's an assurance here. You will be accepted by God if you put your trust in Jesus, he says. You can enter into his presence, experience peace, the promise of fatherly love to you, the individual, for trusting in Jesus. Isn't this amazing? God would give forgiveness for such a heinous crime. Is there any sin he wouldn't forgive? Is there any crime that the blood of Jesus cannot cover? No. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't understand this message about Jesus that we call the gospel, what is there to keep you today from turning to Jesus? What is there to keep you from coming to him if his promise is so free and so full? Come to Jesus and you will experience times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord. And for those of you who are Christians, praise God. Isn't he generous to us? This is significant. I love the words of uh, Isaiah. Come, all you who have no money, and buy (laughs) without cost. That's us, broken and broke. Nothing to bring to God. And yet he promises, come with the empty hands of faith, and I will fill them. That's the promise of God for us. I will fill them with forgiveness, with acceptance before me, with a sense of my fatherly care for you. You will be adopted as the children of God. Let me just briefly consider what this phrase, times of refreshing, means. What does Peter mean by that phrase? It's such a rich phrase. He doesn't spell it out, but I think we can fill in the blanks from other places in scripture. Times of refreshing means freedom from bondage to sin, an assurance of God's love and personal fatherly care for us, a sense of peace in the midst of uncertain circumstances because we know that he's in control of all things and that his eye is on us, individuals, simple people who trust in Jesus. And we have the joy of worshiping God alongside our brothers and sisters here in the church. Times of refreshing, on and on we could go. So the third reason that Peter gives for why Jesus is the greatest gift is because he is the one who can give spiritual healing. Now I wanna take a moment and apply what we've been talking about here. Comparing, uh, by comparing these uh, different things that we're talking about, physical healing and spiritual healing. I think it's important to compare these two things because our response to physical healing or to our physical well-being, our health, often reveals something about our spiritual health. Um, Physical health is such a public 
central part of our lives. Uh, It lays on the surface. And so we can evaluate much easier what we think about it and what we think about it, how we give thanks for it, how we value it, reveals something about our spiritual health as well. Our response to our physical health often exposes truths about our spiritual health that otherwise we might miss. So uh, let me um, ask a series of questions here to help us evaluate our priorities, to help us evaluate uh, our sense of whether or not we believe that Jesus is a greater gift, in fact, than the gifts that he gives, whether or not we value Jesus even above physical health. First, it's important to ask the question, uh, and I'm sure this has arisen in some of your minds, does God still heal people today in Jesus' name as he did in the time of the apostles, as he did in the first century? Or did it end, did God's promise of healing in Jesus' name end with the death of the apostles? There are some good, solid Bible-believing Christians who think that the Bible teaches that when the apostles died, God's mighty acts of power to prove, uh, to prove his message, the gospel, ended. And there is certainly some truth to this because there is a difference between us, modern Christians today, and the apostles, those first speakers of the word of God. God did attend with special power the message when the, pro- when the apostles preached it. Um, he, he wanted to prove this is true. These are my authorized spokespeople, spokesmen. And so, yeah, there is a sense in which spiritual, uh, excuse me, in which physical healing was more prominent in the time of the apostles than it is today. And yet, and yet, God, uh, excuse me, God does still heal today. Nowhere in the Bible, and this is a much bigger question than I can go into now. So suffice it to say, nowhere in the Bible does it say that the miracles of God, particularly healings, ended with the death of the apostles. Uh, Don't take my word for it. Ask Trent about it later. Um, We'd be here till, till the sun goes down if I tried to explain it now. But nowhere in the Bible does it teach that uh, the powerful works of God, particularly physical healing, ended with the end of the ministry of the apostles. So in this sense, God does certainly still heal in Jesus' name today. And we ought to, therefore, application point, we ought to pray for healing in Jesus' name and expect that God will do this, that he may do this if he so chooses. And I don't mean here when I'm speaking of healings, um, uh, some of you have have seen this. Some of you among us I know have seen this. Um, I have not personally experienced this miraculous healing myself, but I do have friends who have firsthand accounts. And I don't mean I don't mean uh, someone starts taking their antibiotics and suddenly they get better. I mean a radical liberation from debilitating sicknesses that medical professionals, competent medical, medical professionals said are, were un, incurable. You can't be healed from that. And God moved in power and freed those people from that. So yes, God does still work miracles among us in the name of Jesus and we should continue to pray and should continue to expect healing in the name of Jesus. So the natural next question 
is, if God still heals today, why doesn't he heal in every circumstance? Or why does he heal some and not others? This is a more difficult question. And the first answer is, we don't know. We don't know. Because God doesn't tell us. God used Elijah to raise the widow's son, and yet he didn't spare Job's family. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and yet Timothy had a stomach ailment that Paul prescribed medicine for. Why does God heal in some circumstances and not others? This is part of the mystery of his providence. He has his reasons, but they're too interwoven with our daily lives for us, uh, for us to understand from the limited perspective of here and now. So we trust that God is wise even when he doesn't heal. On the other hand, we do understand part of the reason, part of the reason that God doesn't heal in every circumstance. We live in a sin-cursed world, so sickness and sorrow will continue to be a part of our experience until the day we receive our new bodies and Jesus returns. In this sense, our hope for physical healing is part of the, the now and not yet framework of the Bible. And Peter uh, clearly points this out. Uh, look at verse 21. Peter says, the time for restoring all things will not happen until Jesus returns a second time. The time for restoring all things is still future. In that, in that day, everything will be restored to the way it should be because Jesus will return and make it right. And that renewed world will be so much better than this one that it's called a new heavens and a new earth in Revelation 21. And there, the promise is in that new heavens and new earth, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, Revelation 21, four. And some of us will have to wait until that time for healing. That's part of the now and not yet of physical healing. There is physical healing now, but it's only partial, only at certain times and places in the mysterious wisdom of God. We have not yet seen perfect healing, in, some, in one sense, um, but it will come when Jesus returns and restores all things. Uh, we've not yet seen perfect physical healing because even for those who have received physical healing, you will still die. Every one of us must pass through death unless we survive to the return of Jesus. Lazarus himself, who was raised from the dead, finally succumbed to death a second time. Is he with us? Physical healing in the now is only temporary. So because our physical health in this life is not perfect and because we often struggle to properly balance these priorities in our lives, we struggle to, to value Jesus above our health at times because our health is so immediate, so pertinent to us in the here and now. Let me give a few diagnostic questions that I think you can use to help maintain this correct balance in your pursuit of health and your pursuit of Jesus. First, ask yourself, 
What do I most frequently and most passionately pray for? What do I most frequently and most passionately pray for? Take stock of your prayer life. If you find that the majority of your prayers, the majority of the time, are for physical health, perhaps you're loving the gift more than the giver. Now, I know that there are times in the midst of a dreadful health crisis, someone you love receives a diagnosis that is terrifying, life-altering, that you may go to Jesus more frequently with requests for physical healing. This is understandable. Jesus lived in the flesh among us. He was tested in every way as we are. And so we can go to him because he sympathizes with us. Go to the throne of mercy. Ask for help. It's okay. He promises, uh, he, he promises to listen to us and to hear us and to sympathize with us because he experienced physical suffering in this life as well, not just on the cross, but in his life as well. But if the normal balance of your prayer life is the majority of the time praying for physical health, perhaps uh, you've got things out of balance and you may need to grow in your love for Jesus. Second question, am I happy in God even when I'm not healed? Ask yourself this, am I happy in God even when I'm not healed? When you pray for healing and you don't experience it immediately, how do you respond? In 2 Corinthians 12, the apostle Paul tells of a particularly experience that he had. And he asked God to relieve him of it, to relieve him of this suffering, to take it away. And God told Paul he wouldn't, and he gave him the reason. This is unique. God told him why he wouldn't take it away. God wanted to show his power in the midst of Paul's weakness. And Paul's response, I love this, let this be our response, is for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Can you say the same? What is your response when God doesn't heal you? What does this reveal about your spiritual health? Third question, and this is for those of you who have continued to experience physical health to today. You're in good health. Let me apply this to you. Would Ask yourself, would I still rejoice in God even if he took away my health? Would I still rejoice in God even if he took away my health? What would your response be if you were diagnosed tomorrow with something terrible? I love the response of Job. Job 13, after losing his children and his health, Job says of God, Though he slay me, yet will I follow him. Ask yourself, would I still rejoice in God even if he took away my health? I hope these diagnostic questions help you maintain the right balance of priorities in your life. Loving, being thankful for the gift, but loving the giver more, even when the gift is taken away, even when your physical health fails or you experience suffering. 
Nancy Guthrie, a lady who has experienced significant suffering in her own life, wrote this in her book, Hearing Jesus Speak Into Your Sorrow. Jesus did not die on the cross to give you a certain number of days of health on this earth, but to fit you, body and soul, for eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. Even if you do not receive physical healing in this life, you can experience the greater gift, spiritual healing, forgiveness, the promise, the assurance of God's love for you and times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord beginning now and continuing into eternity. If we put our confidence in Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified as a punishment for sins and resurrected on the third day to prove God's acceptance of him, if we put our trust in him, these promises are for us. Spiritual healing today and physical healing, if not today, when he returns perfectly. In the future, all those who trust in Jesus will live forever in the new heavens and the new earth where sickness and death will never intrude, where our joy will be complete, not ultimately because there's no physical suffering, but because there will be no more barrier between us and God. Our sins will be taken away, so we'll be face to face with our Creator. We will worship Him forever. No temptation will draw us away from Him. We'll never give in to sin again. In that place, the promise of God that's repeated so frequently in the Old Testament will come true for us. God said, I will be their God and they will be my people and I will dwell with them forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Father, Jesus is the greatest treasure that we could ever have and yet our hearts are weak. We are often distracted. We are often caught up with a sense of concern for the immediate needs in our life. I pray, Father, purify our hearts so that we would love Jesus in the midst of health and in the midst of suffering and that we would long for his return. Lord, we will praise him still. I pray, give us this heart that we would praise him still, whatever may befall us. Help us to love Jesus first and most and to treasure him rightly. And I pray that you would help us to see him go forward in power, the message about Jesus go forward in power among us and in, and in this city. In Jesus' name we pray this, amen.